Um, well, let's get the first question out of the way, because it is always the first question. Where is Edgehill <laughs> University? Um, <laughs> because you say you come from Edgehill University, and people say where. Um, so it's kind of north of Liverpool and west of Manchester in the beautiful um, West Lancashire countryside. So it's got a rather splendid campus that looks like that. So I knew that was going to be the first question. <laughs> um, the topic of my uh, talk this evening is going to be about attempts to motivate students to work hard out of a fear of failure. And um, this is not something I set out to investigate. This is something I kind of stumbled into a little bit by accident. Because um, I was doing some interviews. This is going back a while now, maybe, maybe 12 years ago. I was doing interviews with students in years 10 and years 11 about their experiences of taking their GCSEs, and um, particularly what they found stressful and what they found anxiety-provoking about their uh, forthcoming exams. And many of the things that they mentioned were exactly as you'd anticipate. They talked about managing deadlines for competing coursework, um, back in when they still had coursework, back in the day, uh, managing competing deadlines for doing lots of exams, not wanting to let themselves down, not wanting to let their parents down, the pressures to succeed or the kind of flip side, avoid failure. So that was all anticipated. But something which they talked about, which was completely unprompted, was that as soon as they got into year 10, they were getting this like barrage of messages from their teachers. The next two years are the most important two years of your life. If you don't knuckle down now and work hard, you're never going to make anything of your life. If you want to go to college, you need to get five A-star to, C, five a star to C GCSEs, including maths and English. And if you don't, you're going to end up in a dead-end job. And so on, and so on, and so on. And I don't think it's really any exaggeration to say that this was like a barrage. You know, from the students, the way these students were describing this, it really was, you know... A lot of very intense messages that were repeated very frequently. And for some students, it was a real trigger for a really quite intense degree of stress and anxiety and panic. And, and this intrigued me for two reasons. Um, first of all, it didn't seem to be captured at all in the literature, this phenomenon, this experience that the students were talking about. And uh, secondly, it was very difficult not to be moved on a personal level by what these students were saying, because some of these students were very clearly quite distressed by what they were talking about. So these are the kind of messages that they were getting from their teachers repeatedly over and over again. So um, I thought this is an important topic to investigate. The first thing I did was look what was out there in the literature. Now, there was a research group in America uh, headed by Patricia Kearney who did a series of studies in the mid-1980s to early 1990s about things called behavioural alteration techniques. And these were attempts by classroom teachers, strategies used by classroom teachers to try and ensure on-task compliance. And, uh, as you can imagine, some of these were threat and punishment-based In the early, 19, um, in the early uh, 2000s, sorry, uh, self-determination theory researchers, notably John Marshall Reeve and Avi Asser, were looking at ways in which controlling teacher practices, which include things like um, threats, lots of use of uh, pressured evaluation, and so on, could have a damaging effect on students' intrinsic motivation. And then... I came across this one study that had taken this concept of fear appeals 
and examined how fear appeals might impact on motivation as well. Now, fear appeals are most commonly found in the health and behaviour change literature. So, the image on the left-hand side here is from an anti-smoking campaign, and the one on the right-hand side is to try and discourage people from using their mobile phones while driving. And I'm sure you're very, very familiar with these kinds of images and these kinds of messages, because they're exactly the sorts of things that you come across for anti-smoking campaigns and for using sunscreen in hot weather and for self-examination for breast cancer and testicular cancer and you know if you're of a certain age I'm, I'm sure some of you remember the AIDS Don't Die of Ignorance campaign in the late 1980s in this country. So what fear appeals are trying to do is really instill a bit of anxiety and then show how it can be reduced. So for example this particular course of action might have a negative consequence. If you don't work hard, you're going to fail your GCSEs. And they also might include showing how an alternative course of action, knuckling down, working hard, engaging in your studies, can help avoid that negative outcome. So this seemed a good starting point to me out of the uh, available literature. And I think this was partly because initially I was interested in this link between what the teachers were saying, which seemed to resemble fear pills, and the subsequent experience of anxiety. So, in order to gain some way of measuring what was going on in the classroom and show relations with uh, other important variables, I set out with the help of a graduate student, Christine Roberts, to develop a rough and ready measure. Now, I was particularly influenced when I was putting this measure together by transactional models of stress and anxiety. And what they do is differentiate between the actual stressful event on one hand and the extent to which that might be perceived or appraised as threatening on the other hand. So it seemed important when developing this measure to try and differentiate between the extent to which teachers were using messages that might be deemed as fear appeals and the extent to which they were appraised as threatening. And uh, what we've got here are bivariate correlations with test anxiety, the statistically significant correlations are presented in red. And you can see that the greater use of fear appeals and or their appraisal as threatening shows a positive correlation with the worry and tension components of test anxiety. And when I was putting this measure together, validating this measure, we were asking students for feedback. You know, was this questionnaire any good or not any good? Do we need to make any changes to it? One of the students wrote this on their questionnaire. And this explains really much more eloquently than I could why this is an important topic of study. Every time a teacher tells me my exams are near, or if you fail, you risk not getting a good job, I get so scared. And sometimes I get so scared and stressed I feel like crying. We should just be told to try our best and work hard. And if we don't listen to that information, then it's our fault, because pressuring a student can stress them, and so they end up doing worse than their best. Okay, so we seem to have a link between fear appeals and their appraisal as threatening on one hand and the experience of stress and anxiety on the other hand. So the first more complex study I set out to do with Wendy Symes was to look at the temporal precedence of fear appeals and their appraisal on the one hand and test anxiety on the other. You know, the question is really, 
is it fear of pills that are leading to test anxiety or do we have people who are more test anxious to begin with just report these sorts of messages as being more frequent and threatening? So we measured fear of pills and test anxiety at the end of year 10 and at the end of year 11. And controlling for the concurrent relations between test anxiety and fear of pills and also their um, stability over time or their so-called autoregressive relationships, we find this. Students who perceive or appraise fear appeals as more threatening at the end of year 10 report more worry and tension at the end of year 11. So there seems to be some important temporal precedence here. And then I went a little bit further with a second study with Wendy to try and map on these two achievement as well. So in this particular study, we just looked at these in the context of mathematics and tried to examine the relations with GCSE maths grade. And we also included for the first time a motivational variable as well, that of achievement goals. So what we find here is that there is a relationship between consequence reminders and performance avoidance. Now performance avoidance is where the student's goal is to avoid performing worse than their classmates. And it's generally considered a maladaptive goal because it's based in avoidance motivations and um, a, a fear of failure. We find exam reminders though, so just these reminders that your exams are forthcoming, six months away, four weeks away, one week away and so on, is related to a mastery approach goal. And a mastery approach goal is where one's goal is to improve or develop one's competence. And it's generally considered a very uh, adaptive goal. Can I just ask, the performance avoidance in the mastery approach, is, mm. is that Dweck's approach? Is that, were those her skills you were looking at there? This was the, similar, but this was the, the Andy Elliott okay. version. And then we find the appraisal of these messages as threatening is related to a performance avoidance goal and also the worry and tension components of test anxiety. And in turn, we find performance avoidance, worry and tension all predicting worse GCSE math score. So then what we can start to do is map out an indirect relationship from consequence reminders to a worse GCSE score through performance avoidance and um, an indirect relationship from fret appraisal to a worse GCSE score through performance avoidance and test anxiety. And actually, we found mastery approach predicted a better GCSE maths grade, so actually a positive relationship from consequence reminders to a GCSE score through mastery approach. So some of these elements positive, some of these elements negative. So when I conducted these first couple of studies and was talking about them with people, some people asked rather sceptically, and, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense at all, actually. I think people should be sceptical with research. But they said, do teachers really do this? As in they couldn't quite believe that you had some teachers out there that were trying to scare their students into working hard. And so... We conducted a survey of, I think it's just a relatively small number of year 10, year 11 teachers, about 213. We gave them statements such as this and asked them, how much do you do this? And we've got a scale here, strongly disagree, disagree, neither agree nor disagree, 
agree, strongly agree. And you can see here we've got about, I don't know, 80-odd percent of people agreeing or strongly agreeing that they use a statement like that. And we have about 65% of respondents either agreeing or strongly agreeing that they used a statement like that. And more or less even split between responses to that kind of statement. So when people say, do teachers really do this now, I just present those slides and say the answers speak for themselves. But I'm not being critical of teachers, actually. I think some people, perhaps, um, are assuming I'm saying this is a, a negative thing, a bad thing. And, and actually, I'm not. I've got an open mind, actually. This is not necessarily a bad thing. Because I think it's very easy to forget the degree of pressures which teachers are under. And um, I don't know if any of you watched the um, programme Educating Yorkshire. Um, but that seemed to me full of really, really good reasons why teachers might be using statements such as this. And if the technology works, it's just a little, it's only a very, very short excerpt from Educating Yorkshire that um, may well demonstrate this. Among the kids who have missed the mark, there is one group of girls that have been testing Thornhill's maths department to the limit. Hannah and Lauren and Sheridan and Beth have been from maths teacher to maths teacher to maths teacher. And we're getting thrown out of lessons. Oh dear, I've done it wrong! And they were not making any progress at all. That's nice and cold. I didn't test with them, they all got mute. I'm not good at maths. It's just like I'm reading. No. Going in no. I'm going to be an hairdresser. I'm not going to need to know what x times 2 pi r, whatever it is. I don't need to know that and don't need to know that an hairdressing. <laughs> when do you need to find the area of the triangle in life? It's so pointless. In some way it's hard to disagree, I think. <laughs> I'd like to come back to this question of causality. Um, because this is one of these, you know, kind of ubiquitous perennial questions for researchers who are involved with naturalistic data. You know, we've got fear appeals and their appraisal on one hand, and we've got test anxiety on the other. And, you know, the previous study suggested some temporal precedence between the two, but actually... You know, if you really want to say conclusively that fear appeals or their appraisal are causing an increase in test anxiety, you need to use an experimental intervention. And this is difficult in this kind of area because it's probably not ethically defensible to take a situation where people are not having uh, or not receiving, uh, teachers aren't using fear appeals, and have an intervention whereby they start using these. And I was discussing, <coughs> discussing this issue with a group of students. And I was very fortunate that that group of students contained somebody who was a part-time teacher in a primary school. And she said, well, that's interesting, because we did this all the time at my primary school. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. 
And so we actually thought the ethically defensible way then to set up this study to have an experimental manipulation is rather than to introduce fear appeals where there previously were none, was to do it the other way around. Take a situation where their fear appeals were being used and the intervention is to then stop their use. And so we did an experimental intervention over two weeks and the children had a maths test at the end of each week And one of those weeks was deemed a fear appeals week, and they had maths lesson every day, and in their maths lesson they were told, you're going to have a test at the end of the week, and it's really important that you do not fail. Because the results are going to go to the head teacher, the results are going to go to your parents, and everybody's going to know what they are. Which apparently is what the school did all the time. And then in the other week, which we deemed the no fear appeals week, they were told in their maths lessons, you're going to have a test at the end of the week, but it's nothing to worry about. You just need to try your hardest. And then we counterbalanced, so some children did the fear appeals week first and some people did it second. And so what we end up is, is what we end up with are three possibilities. And the first possibility is that it's the fear appeals that are actually causing the test anxiety, and that is kind of consistent with your classic transactional model of stress or test anxiety. You've got a stressful situation that's focusing people on failure, they anticipate failure, and they become anxious as a result of But there is also a body of work in the clinical cognitive anxiety literature that looks at how people who are anxious have this vigilance for threat stimuli in their environment. They're more likely to notice threat stimuli or take neutral stimuli and interpret it in a threatening way, which they call attentional bias. So actually it's theoretically plausible that you might have children, students, who are anxious to begin with and are just seeing their teachers use these messages more frequently, or they're interpreting messages as being more threatening. And the third possibility is actually, rather than just being one option or the other, is the relationship is bi-directional. So, these are the results for the first study that we did. And I've rescaled everything on one to five, just so I can show it to you on a single graph. Um, The children in the fear appeals condition most definitely reported their teachers to be using more fear appeals and they reported them to be more threatening. So the intervention seems to have been successful. It seemed to have worked. Uh, But this is the critical bit. Children in the fear appeals condition reported higher test anxiety and lower grade. So it seems to provide evidence that fear appeals or their appraisal is a causal factor in test anxiety, a negative thing. But it doesn't necessarily rule out the attentional bias hypothesis altogether. So we did a replication the following year in which we took an additional baseline measure of test anxiety one month before the experimental intervention. And these are the results of that study. And we've replicated the finding that children report the fear appeals condition to be more threatening uh, and fear appeals more frequent. Also that their anxiety immediately after the test is higher and the test scores are lower. But what's the interesting bit is that we did not find any interaction between the degree of anxiety that the students reported or their test score and whether those children were um, typically high or low test anxious. The same pattern of results was found. 
But we did find an interaction, interestingly enough, between the extent to which they perceived fear appeals being used. And you can see here that children who are more highly test anxious at the baseline measure reported their teachers to be using more fear appeals. And they also reported them to be more threatening. So this is partial evidence for the attentional bias hypothesis. But what's interesting is that it didn't actually seem to translate into the degree of anxiety experienced immediately after the test or their test score. So this group of studies that I've um, been talking to you about now, this really kind of concluded the first batch of studies that I conducted. And we were interested in trying to work out how to measure fear appeals, how to establish whether they were appraised as threatening or not, and link that to some uh, important educational outcomes, test anxiety and test grade. Um, what I'd like to do is uh, just pause for a moment in respect of talking about the research, and I'd just like to show you some, some short excerpts of some interviews that I conducted with students, um, not just about fear appeals, but about the types of messages they were used, uh, types of messages that were being used by their teachers more broadly. Um, now, I need to turn the sound up because the sound wasn't especially good on these recordings. Trying 
able to get into a college. Mm -hmm. So the course I'm going on, only needed to in English. Mm -hmm. no, yeah, two, two D's in English, that's English language and English literature. And I meant I've got a C in English language already, and I'm doing my English literature work. I'm already target it today. Then maths. If I don't get my maths here, I can still do it at Stroud College. Mm -hmm. So it's not like if you don't get a D in algebra, as I said, you're not having it again. Most teachers, you do do the whole, but if you don't get a C, you might not get a good job because jobs people now are only looking for people with C's. And they're like, why don't you sit my exam for me then? Like, it's so much now. You get the feeling that was just waiting to come out. It's just like this, <laughs> this monologue just carried on and on and on. I think these are interesting partly because you get to hear the student's own voice and partly just like this little last excerpt showed for some students these messages are not a bad thing for some students these messages are a good thing and so this really inspired the kind of second batch of studies which I've been carrying out and the starting point was to try and think through why messages might be appraised in different ways. That threat is not the only way in which these messages can be perceived. And so I, I proposed this appraisal model with Wendy Symes and we thought that the first kind of judgement the teachers are likely to make, uh, sorry, the first judgement that the students are likely to make is whether they value the outcome contained in the message or contained in the fear appeal. You know, for instance, if the teacher's saying you need to pass your GCSE English to go to college, then the student asks themselves, well, actually, do I want to go to college? Is this important to me? Is this valuable to me? And if this isn't valuable or important, then actually the most likely outcome is that the message will be ignored or disregarded. But... If the message or the outcome in the message is seen as uh, important and relevant, then the next, judge, the next judgment the student makes is to ask whether they are likely to achieve 
the outcome proposed in the fear appeal. Am I good enough? Am I likely to pass GCSE English? And if they do value the message and they think they're likely to succeed, then the most likely outcome will be a challenge appraisal. And if they value the message but don't think they're likely to succeed, then the most likely outcome will be a threat appraisal. So what we end up with here are three potential appraisals. And really, the essence of the disregarding appraisal is this. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm not listening. The essence of the challenge appraisal is, yes, I know I'm going to get there. Yes, I believe I'm going to get there. And the essence of the threat appraisal looks something like this. The threat seems much more uh, magnified than perhaps it actually is. So each of these different appraisals has got a different focus. The challenge appraisal is focused on uh, mastery. Um, the threat appraisal is focused on uh, protecting oneself. And the disregarding appraisal is focused on the lack of relevance. And they've got associated emotions with these. So the first thing we did was to extend the previous measure to include a challenge scale as well as a threat scale. And what we can see in this table here are the bivariate correlations with three types of subjective task value. We've got IV, or intrinsic value, which is where the subject is seen as uh, important or interesting in its own right. We've got attainment value, or AV, where attainment in a particular subject is seen as valuable. And we've got UV, which is utility value, which is where the subject is seen as having some kind of uh, relevance for one's short or long-term goals. And for those of you who know it, this is um, uh, part of expectancy value theory. And we've got ASE, which is academic self-efficacy, whether somebody believes that they're capable of performing those tasks likely to result in success in their GCSEs. And you can see that challenge appraisal is positively related to all three forms of subjective task value and academic self-efficacy. Whereas threat appraisal is positively related to attainment value and negatively related to academic self-efficacy and intrinsic value. So this kind of, you know, broadly fits with our theory. But we also then followed it up with a study and we looked or checked for the interactions between the different types of subjective task value and academic self-efficacy. And you can see here that the greatest challenge appraisal was coming from high attainment value. And this is an important message because it was the attainment value in particular that was interacting with academic self-efficacy, not intrinsic value or utility value. So you can see high, highest challenge here came from high attainment value, high academic self-efficacy. Whereas here we can see the highest threat appraisal came from high value, low academic self-efficacy. So that all seems to fit with our theory very nicely. We've also tried an alternative way to study these, which is to make up vignettes, artificial vignettes, of ty different types of students. So we can manipulate whether these fictional students in these vignettes are high or low on their competence beliefs or high or low on their subjective task value. Uh, and here's an example of one of the vignettes we've used. So this would be an exemplar vignette for a student with high task value, and it's a kind of combination of utility value and attainment value and high competence beliefs, a kind of mixture of academic self-efficacy and expectancy of success. So it says, Sarah is a hard-working Year 11 student who's good at maths. She finds the work done in lessons challenging but usually does very well. 
in her year 10 maths exam she got a grade A and has predicted a grade A in her GCSE maths. Sarah believes that maths is an important subject to do well in. She wants to go to college to study A levels. Knows she must get at least a pass in GCSE maths. She also knows that maths is a useful skill to have in daily life to help with things like bills. And so we gave these uh, vignettes to um, students and said, well, how do you think these kind of students would respond? And you can see here that the highest challenge appraisal was found in the vignette that had high value and high competence beliefs. The highest threat appraisal was found in the vignette with high value but low competence beliefs. And the highest disregarding appraisal was found in the vignette with low value. So again, that all fits with our theory very nicely. So what we've got evidence for then is that subjective task value and competence beliefs are antecedents of the appraisal process. But quite often, these kind of psychoeducational constructs that we're talking about here, motivational variables, engagement variables, um, emotional variables, these kind of things don't operate in um, one direction. That actually the relationship between these things is bidirectional, and over a period of time they kind of play out in a cyclic direction. So we expanded the model to see if there were feedback loops from challenge and threat appraisal back to subjective task value and competence beliefs. So that is, subjective task value and competence beliefs are not just antecedents of the appraisal process, but they're also outcomes of the appraisal process too. So it's almost like, you know, when, when you have this appraisal, it's almost like um, a reflective exercise where the student's asking themselves, is this important to me and can I do it? And if the answer to those things is yes, it has a reinforcing effect on the values and uh, competence beliefs. And if the answer is no, that has a reinforcing effect on the subjective task value and competence beliefs. So we tested that particular model with a longitudinal study with attainment value on academic self-efficacy measured at two time points, time one, time three, and appraisals measured at one time point in the middle. And we found that a challenge appraisal was predicted from high attainment value and high academic self-efficacy, whereas the threat appraisal was predicted from high attainment value but low academic self-efficacy. Okay, that kind of fits with the previous set of findings, but this is the really interesting bit. Challenge appraisal then goes on to influence future attainment value and academic self-efficacy in a positive direction over and above the variance accounted for by prior attainment value and academic self-efficacy, whereas threat appraisal goes on to predict lower attainment value and lower academic self-efficacy over and above the variance accounted for, the prior variance accounted for by attainment value and academic self-efficacy. So what this is evidence for is a bi-directional relationship between attainment value, academic self-efficacy and the appraisal of messages. That it looks like these things are operating in a cyclic fashion that will unfold over time. We've then gone on to look at feedback loops with engagement as well. So that is Coming back to the, one of the original questions, I think, behind this study of fear appeals, you know, do they actually 
try and encourage students to work hard and stay on task. And the idea is uh, behind this model is that students who appraise these messages in a positive way are likely to be more engaged, whereas students who appraise these messages in a negative way are less likely to be engaged. And so this is one of our... I'm um, oh sorry, and there'll be feedback loops as well, so that engagement goes back to influence the appraisal. Um, so this is one of the current studies that we have just completed. So we've got engaged behaviours measured at two time points and we've got appraisals measured at the second time point. And we find students who are more engaged report being more challenged and those students who are, or that for engaged behaviours, and those students who report themselves as being engaged emotionally report less threat. And again, this is the really interesting bit, because those students who then appraise messages as challenging are then reporting themselves to be more engaged behaviourally, so they're staying on task, and more engaged emotionally, so they're more likely to enjoy the work that they're doing. Whereas students who appraise these messages as threatening are less likely to be focused on task and they're less likely to enjoy the work that they're doing. So we're starting to find these much more kind of complex and nuanced relationships between appraisals and the various kind of motivational uh, engagement or emotional constructs. So really, um, to summarise um, what we know about, well, threat appraisals seem to result in negative outcomes, and these include higher test anxiety, maladaptive achievement goals, lower test scores. And they also have negative impacts on task value and academic self-efficacy. Also a study which I haven't told you uh, about here, about self-determined motivation. And we know that threat appraisal is going to be more likely in certain profiles of students, for instance, those with high value but low academic self-efficacy. But we also know that the threat is not the only type of appraisal. And to summarise some of the things that where I think we need to go with this line of research is I've spent really the past couple of years trying to get to this kind of nitty-gritty of why some students seem to appraise these messages in different ways, why it's positive for some, negative for others. I'd like to refocus back on outcomes now. And we've done this one study in engagement, but this is where I think we need to go next. We need to do many more studies on engagement um, and look at different types of emotions other than test anxiety. And we also need to establish the relationship between challenge appraisals and test scores. So like we found the negative relationship between threat appraisal and test scores, is there a positive relationship for challenge and test scores? I've been trying to work towards more robust designs and I think again this is where we need to go. We need to make sure that we're collecting longitudinal data. If we're going to look at achievement, this is one of the flaws of the earlier designs, we need to make sure that we're accounting for prior achievement too. And I would love the opportunity to do some more experimental work in this area. But I think it was such a serendipitous moment before, I'm not sure that you can actually plan that very effectively. I'm waiting for the next serendipitous moment to happen. 
And uh, something that one of the students alluded to, uh, or in fact actually maybe both alluded to it in the interview clips, and this is something that a lot of students have said to me, is that it depends upon the relationship with the teacher. If they like a teacher, or if they believe a teacher is, um, how do they put it, if they think they're any good, <laughs> basically, then they're much more inclined to listen to these messages, much more inclined to respond to messages in a positive fashion than if they don't like the teacher or if they don't rate the teacher. So I think there's uh, some value in um, examining those factors as well. I've kind of been playing around with this idea a little bit of actually subsuming fear appeals within a sort of slightly broader framework because fear appeals are not the only types of messages which teachers use, are they? I mean, we've been focusing on a very narrow thing here. Actually, teachers use lots of different sorts of messages. Some are positive and some are efficacy-based. So I was wondering whether fear appeals could be subsumed into this idea of value-promoting messages, some of which are focused on avoiding failure, such as fear appeals, whereas others are what you might call gain-focused and focus on what can be achieved. And messages can be... Uh, rated according to the different types of values they promote and also the extent to which they might accompany efficacy messages too. This is what you need to do to avoid failure and I believe that you can do it. We just started some kind of preliminary work in this area. And of course this is research that I hope has some kind of practical utility. And um, these are the... Um, I I think the five, the five main things that I talk about when I'm um, uh, faced with teachers as the audience. And first of all, that communication matters, actually. What the teachers are saying in the classroom environment really does make an impact on their students. And some teachers get this, and some teachers believe it for some students but not other students. Because um, they say, well, you know, you kind of get the stony silence kind of feeling sometimes. But no, when you talk to the students, that might be the impression that they're giving, but no, it does matter for them. I think teachers are using these messages with the right intention. Some students need a bit of carrot and some need a bit of stick and some need a bit of carrot and stick. But even though messages might be intended to be used in a positive fashion, they're not necessarily intended in this way. Uh, sorry, not necessarily interpreted or appraised in this way. Does the type of message matter? Well, does it matter whether it's focused on what can be achieved rather than what can be lost? Well, like I just mentioned, we've started some preliminary research in this area uh, where we've been comparing gain-focused and loss-focused messages and actually we've found there is very, very, very little difference between the sense students are making of them. It's almost like they're two sides of the same coin. If you focus what can be gained, de facto, you're telling students what can be lost and vice versa. So if the impact doesn't um, depend upon the message, I think what has come out from the research that we've been doing looking at antecedents is that it does depend upon the student. The student characteristics, the student profile. And then the $64 million question that teachers want to know, so what, I sh what should I be saying to my class? Now, my response to that question is, I was sat in a class of GCSE students about three weeks ago, 
And I was talking to them, I was giving them a presentation about this research because they'd been participants in one of the studies. And I said, can we have a quick show of hands, please? When your teachers say this, how many of you find it a good thing? It's useful, it motivates you, it's positive. And in a class of 25, you get about five put their hands up. And I say, okay then. Who hates it? Who really finds this, you know, not helpful, it makes you worry? And you get about ten hands go up. And that's the answer for the teachers. What is the optimal message? There isn't one. Because there is no one-size-fits-all. It depends upon the student. Now, I don't know. Does that lead you down a kind of slightly academic, ivory tower-esque? Almost kind of, you know utopian kind of vision whereby you know, teachers should be giving this message to this student and this message to this student and they all perfectly understand the motivation of their students. And you know, I've really been very hesitant about putting that out to teachers because they'll just laugh at me. Um, but I've kind of talked about it and introduced the subject and they kind of look at me like I'm daft for the other reason. They say, of course, of course we want to gauge the right messages for the right students and of course we're doing this already. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So they, they're open to the idea, but clearly what the research is showing, that perhaps they're not gauging the messages or they're not gauging which students might respond appropriately and not that well. So I think from a practical point of view, I think that's, that's the other part where the research needs to go is to start working with teachers in a little bit more hands-on sense to find out why they're using particular messages with particular students and so on and what sense they're making of their students' motivations. And that's the end of my talk, so thank you very much.